So good morning everyone. Welcome to the first day of session. Can you hear me okay down the back there? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, what better topic to um, open a session with in a Dharma talk than the Heart Sutra? And the Heart Sutra is considered to be Buddhism in a nutshell. And then if you want to look at what the nut is within the nutshell, the nut within the nutshell, the, the lines within the Heart Sutra, which sum it all up, is form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And it repeats that theme all the way through with a bit more detail. But that's the essential theme of it. And it's not just the metaphysical construct, it's also saying that if you, get, if you can um, uh, develop insight into that, that form is emptiness and emptiness is form, it transforms all suffering. Right? So it's not just some abstract idea, it's actually an experience which transforms the way that we live our life. And that's why we're all here for this week, to, you know, to, to look into that great matter. Now, Buddhist academics um, cause a huge amount of confusion in talking about emptiness and they make it very abstract and profound and enigmatic and so on and they write doctoral theses about it and so on. Um, but it's not that hard to understand and it's simple to understand when you use metaphors as a way of trying to understand it rather than linear logic. Because <clears throat> the nature of this statement, form is emptiness and emptiness is forms, is form, it's like saying two things are one at the same time and logic can't touch that. Whereas metaphors do, metaphors are actually a form of language that embodies two things at once. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the opening chapter of Joko's second book, Nothing Special, is about whirlpools. And a whirlpool is a very good metaphor for what we're trying to look at here, that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. So in the river, there are whirlpools, little eddies, a little vortex with the centre, you know, and they spin around. Mm -hmm. And yes, they, they have a form. You can actually see that they're a whirlpool in the river. But if we look at it closely, the whirlpool is not separate to the river, right? It's got water constantly flowing into it, spinning around and going back out again. It's not separate from the river at all. Um, the problem with these, um, these little uh, uh, whirlpools that are us is that we mistakenly believe that we're separate from the river uh, and that we have this existence that, that's sort of separate from everything else and that gives rise to all of our anxiety and fear and anger, etc. and all of our grasping and aversion because we're trying to hold on to something permanent that's just not permanent. It's just not the way it is uh -huh. and we can't see it. And when we, when we develop an insight that the whirlpool is just the river, you know, or the ice is just water, to use another metaphor, 
then, then suffering transforms. Mm-hmm. Nothing to fear anymore. It's no self to hold on to. It's just the way it is. Just the way things are. And um, another simple metaphor is the wave in the ocean. You can see waves on the ocean, but the waves are not separate from the ocean. The ocean is vast mm-hmm. and deep. Mm-hmm. But these, there's definitely these waves on the surface going past. Another example too, just something which is closer to home in our um, little dojo in North Sydney. Um, last Friday when I was sitting there at morning sitting, and uh, you know the Persian rug on the floor, right? and it's got shapes in it and patterns in it, you know, but the shapes and the patterns aren't separate from the warp and weave of the carpet. They're not something you can pick up and take away. They're, they're inherent in it. Right? Just simply cannot be separated from it. But they're there. You can see them. Mm-hmm. And even in modern science, quantum physics affirms this old um, Buddhist truth as well, that everything is just made up of energy whirling around mm-hmm, in space. Things like cushions and so on, you know, really just little atomic particles whizzing around and they have no substance to them. Everything is insubstantial. But that is a cushion. Mm -hmm. That is a cushion. Mm -hmm. And Thich Nhat Hanh, um, as a wise old teacher, has in one of his books, it really caught my attention, he said that a lot of um, Zen monks and nuns and lay people and people have been practising for a while want to jump into the absolute too quickly. They want to jump into expressing the emptiness of life. And it's a kind of bit of Zen showing off, really. You know, look at, look at my insight. I understand what emptiness is. And, um, but he's cautioning against that. Don't jump into the absolute too quickly. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Mm-hmm. That's why the old Zen teachers used to hit, hit people with sticks. Oh, everything is empty. Whack. Right? Is that empty? Mm-hmm. Felt like a form, didn't it? Yeah? Dualistic views. You can get caught in, stuck in the absolute or just get stuck in the form. Something shifts. It's hard to, hard to put words to it, but... As we practice, our life just feels more like a metaphor rather than logical. And that's, and that's there's something wonderful about that. And then we reach for metaphors as a way of trying to, to understand it. One of the other misconceptions about emptiness which is a variation on the same thing, is that it's a thing. You give an experience a noun and then people turn it into a thing. But like I said in the opening words to session last night, is that the Buddha looked up at the morning star and he had this great realisation and we can have the same glimmer of realisation. When we look up into that night sky, and we realise that we're nothing. Right? We're just emptiness. Uh-huh. 
But what comes with that as well is that we realise that we're everything. We are the whirlpool and we are the river. We are the pattern on the rug and we are the rug. We are the wave and we're the ocean. When people get, get caught in this, oh, well, I'm just nothing, there's nothing there, it's not, it's not, a, it's not complete. Mm-hmm. If you really are nothing, you are everything. And there's something joyous about everything. There's nothing bleak about being everything. It's important to recognise that. The Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra also talks about Prajna, which translates as wisdom, but that needs a little more filling out. Some of the brief research I did on this, after the Buddha's um, death, there was a strong emphasis on um, developing what's called jhana, or the jhanas, and jhanas translates as knowledge. But knowledge is about having knowing something that helps you into the future, like a wisdom that helps you, like a prognosis in medical terms, gives you an idea of where to go. But prajna is not about knowing something that's going to help you into the future. Prajna is about pre-knowledge. Or to put it in contemporary everyday terms, prajna is beginner's mind. The mind that's before concepts arises, before we cling to concepts. That's what prajna is. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, it's a a pre-existing understanding. It comes before words and concepts start to emerge in our mind. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're practising during sasen, is to, we, we notice the words and the concepts arising and the attitudes and the beliefs. Um, but our practice is to just see them as, as Joko says, energy fragments that just come and go, that we don't invest in. And that's what makes the difference. Now, all of this might sound a little bit abstract in terms of what practice is. So we have to, despite what I said last night about psychologising, we need to psychologise a little bit, at least, minimally, minimalistically, in order to, un- to get a grounding as to what our practice is. Because when we think we're the whirlpool, separate, and, we, and we've lost, we've got caught in this little vortex of I, me, mine, um, and we've forgotten that we're part of the big river that comes in and out of us, then we get attached to identities and we create identities, particular identities that we, we cling around. And they're, they're essentially dualistic in nature because they involve clinging something to the rejection of something else. And I'll give you a few examples of them. Um, this first one came out of um, a man I was working with in therapy and I couldn't quite work out why he was there because he told me he had a not-so-good childhood and you know, negative things that happened to him in his past. But he kept telling me all the time how well he was doing and how well he coped and nothing really bothered him. And then you wonder, well, why are you here in therapy? Mm-hmm. And then it dawned on me after a while that he's clinging to an identity of resilience. 
I am a resilient person, nothing touches me, I can cope with anything. And so there's, and I'm sure that that's an aspect of him, but that's what he's identifying with, and what he's having an aversion to is vulnerability. So that's an ex- one example of how it plays itself out. Right? And if you're clinging to resilience and you deny your vulnerability, well, you will suffer. And the opposite is also true. I see a lot of people who are caught in a victim identity. Right? I am vulnerable. I have no resilience. I can't cope with anything. Right? It's the opposite one. You know, but, but that creates suffering as well. I'm just vulnerable and I've got no, I've got nothing that can, can help me, do you know, deal with everything that's thrown with me in life. They're not, no backbone, right? No, no understanding of the strengths that might be there, do you know, to deal with life. So they're opposite ones. It depends what we cling to and what we have aversion to. Other examples that come to mind. I am a leader, right? I can't be told what to do. Right? I can't be told what to do because I'm a leader. Mm-hmm. I'm always in charge. If we have that identity, we will suffer too, and our relationships will suffer. Um, I am morally perfect. Mm-hmm. In other words, I can't acknowledge that I ever make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And we all make mistakes. Um, I know everything, right? Um, I can never appear that I'm ignorant. Conversation comes to mind around that one. It's a long time ago, Diana probably doesn't remember it, but we went to dinner with um, uh, um, a specialist medico person and his wife, and he's a very knowledgeable man, and we were talking about his specialty in medicine for a long time and he was very knowledgeable. And then, then the conversation shifted to sailing, which is something I do know something about and he knew more about it than I did, even though he wasn't a sailor. Right? It's an example of someone being stuck in their identity that they know everything. You know, we, we can all get caught up in that one. Then there's another one. Um, I'm none of the above, I'm, I'm none of those, you know. <laughs> nasty people. I'm, I'm just a kind, loving person who likes to help everyone all the time. That's who I am. Mm-hmm. And people who are caught in that identity, it's another, it's another subtle or not so subtle whirlpool. Because you look at the nature of a whirlpool, this water comes into a whirlpool and this water which flows out of the whirlpool. But the person who thinks they're just a kind, generous person all the time, all they're focusing on is what goes out, like what I, what I give back out to the river. Mm-hmm. They're not focusing at all, they can, they've got, they're blindsided in terms of what the river does that nurtures them. And people who live out that kind of identity, they, they don't really allow, they, they're okay with other people being dependent on them, but they don't like being dependent on other people. You know, and so they don't allow themselves to be nurtured by other people or to look after themselves and then they burn out and then they get resentful. So that's a form of suffering too. So even that one, as nice as it seems, you know, it's not another subtle version on the same thing. And then 
Um, well, I'm none of those two. I'm a spiritual person. <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm not involved in any of those dualisms or anything. But people who are so-called um, spiritual people often can't sight, see that they have a dark side, just like the moon has a dark side. Is that we just don't want to... We, somehow we think we're superior and we're above it all. Mm-hmm. And we're human beings. Mm-hmm. And then you may even want to transcend it even further and say, yes, but I'm a Zen master. I'm beyond all of this as well. I'm even beyond the spiritual. And if you think you're an enlightened Zen master, then you need to be grounded and humiliated and humbled by the words of Dogen Zenji, who was our founder, who before he died said, my life has been one continuous mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Mistakes are part of being human. Mm-hmm. It's how we relate to the mistakes, really, not the fact that whether we make them or not. Yeah. Um, currently, um, I'm reading a book which you may have heard of called The Gulag Archipelago, which was written by um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, a Nobel Prize winner um, and who, through his writing, um, made it very, very clear and exposed the, the, the shocking um, uh, oppression of the Russian people that followed the, the revolution back in 1920s. Torture, imprisonment, execution on a large scale, an enormously large scale. And it just didn't start with Stalin, it started with Lenin. The sort of the story in the West, oh, that just happened later with Stalin. It happened right from the very beginning, and he was caught up in it. He was a decorated lieutenant in the war against the Germans, but even him, because he was a military man, anyone slightly suspected as being against the revolution was imprisoned for 10 years, and brutally, and he was imprisoned. And, um, and through his... But also, where I'm up to at the moment of the book, he's in a cell with some other prisoners and he's rather happy and he starts to explore the cell and the other wants to get to know the other prisoners and so on and he, for some reason this was, a, this was the beginning of a, some spiritual um, journey for him where he realised this was going to be the turning point in his life and there's these and he, he, he uh, developed into being um, a very spiritual person through um, recontacting his, um, uh, his roots through uh, Russian Orthodox Christianity. These are some words from his him which are often quoted, which are very, very sobering and touching. If it were only all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the hearts of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Very touching words. Great humility in that. You know, someone who could see that he was a victim but he also could see, being a lieutenant in the war, that he was a perpetrator as well. We, 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 
we're deluded and we get caught in these very fixed ideas of who we are. So our practice through this session ultimately, if it's true to what the Heart Sutra is um, aspiring us to see, is to see that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. That we're a whirlpool that's not separate from the river. That's, that's the insight that we cultivate over and over again. And you can do that not, not just sitting on a cushion, but looking at the trees and the birds and the wind blowing mm -hmm, and looking at the pond and seeing the interconnectedness of everything, how everything is dependent on everything else. Nothing out there has any separate existence like us. So you can look within, but you can look without as well to see that all around us and to remind that of us. It's enough. I don't want you to get caught up in analysing identities and so on. But it's enough to recognise when you're caught in an identity, not to analyse it or dwell it. And what the, what the symptoms are, usually, of being caught in an identity is that you're either feeling irrational fear and anxiety or irrational anger. Right? Because the fear arises out of clinging on to something right? and then fear of losing it. And the anger arises because we're simply getting an experience we don't want to have. Mm -hmm. And they're the two primitive emotions in human beings and all animals that get triggered off. Right. So whenever you, whenever you see, in, in a sense, we've got enough to weep, we've got shelter, we've got warmth, we're, we're safe here. There's really nothing to be scared of, except ourselves, right? our own thoughts. Um, so when fear arises here, or anger arises, they're, they're symptomatic of being caught in a self-centred dream. They're symptomatic of being caught in an identity. All we have to do, we don't have to analyse it, just recognise it, and then we return back to the present moment. The river is feeding the whirlpool. Sensations are coming in, sensations are going phenomena arises and falls away. They're, they're the same ways of saying the same thing. We just have to go back to that uh, and see that the actual nature of our existence, the true nature of our existence. So while we're on, to finish on, while we're on a slightly Marxist theme here, let me end with a variation on it. People of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but the chains of your deluded thinking. Mm -hmm. That applies to all of us.